Investors Chronicle. Hello and welcome back to Investors Chronicle's Investing Explained podcast series. We've got a great topic for you today as we'll be discussing various investor biases and how to overcome them. Investing can be a scary experience and lead to irrational decision making. Indeed, lots of investors have certainly already had their nerves tested this year as several stocks, particularly in areas of technology, have seen significant share price falls. Seeing a sea of red in your investment account can be really tough, but as as Morgan Housel, author of The Psychology of Money, puts it, investing is not really about what you know, it's about how you behave. Behavioural economists have identified hundreds of psychological biases that can influence the way we make decisions about our finances. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Henry Cobb, Head of Research at Elston Consulting, to help guide us through what the most common traps are and how to avoid them. Henry, thank you for joining me. How are you? Very well, thanks, Mary. How are you? Thank you for having me. (laughs) I'm very well. It's great to have you back on. Uh, Let's just start with a straightforward question. What's the most common psychological trap that investors fall into? Well, first of all, just picking up what you said, the outcome here, behavioural finance is so important because it actually illustrates... Um, although we like to think we're all rational actors, um, actually people end up doing things because that's how how we're sort of programmed to behave. So there's some great books out there that I'd recommend, like um, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, or Nudge Theory, and all of these behavioral finance books has been a really recent kind of development, but actually it really explains a lot of investment behavior. So I think the the, the one that, that strikes me most important is what is what's called inertia. So inertia means that. Um, people are actually very um, reluctant to start something new. Um, and if you think about the number of people, you know, New Year's resolutions or whether it's like, I want to start investing, but we put it off for all sorts of reasons because actually um, people don't, it's really hard to make that, that cognitive step to say, actually, I'm actually going to make a plan and actually do it because there's, we find all sorts of reasons why um, we don't do things. So, so what a lot of people finance theory is about, what can we do so rather than kind of fight these biases and say we've got to lecture people about education why they must do this and must do that, is actually to run with those biases and say, okay, we're going to put you on this portfolio unless you write to us and say no. And that's what auto-enrolment is. Auto-enrolment was a mass exercise of harnessing inertia to get people investing. Yeah, I guess um, it's a bit scary if you haven't invested before and news headlines of big stock market crashes don't help. Um, but, yeah. you, but you can so so as you said sort of drip feeding in setting up automatic payments um, another benefit of doing that can be pound cost averaging can you explain how that works absolutely so pound cost averaging is is um, is, is really interesting um, because it does two things there's the effectively the jury's out as to whether you end up being better off or worse off than doing it all in one lump sum um, but, but over the very long term and actually, all the academic studies say there's not much difference, but it makes a huge impact on psychology. So if you literally had just invested, finally, you've kind of plucked up the courage, you've done all the research, you've opened your stockbroking account, you kind of, um, you've chosen the provider, you've picked your portfolio and you press the big green button to kind of get going. If the week after that or the month after that, then there's a massive market sort of crash or correction, you're going to feel really sore because you're suddenly staring this paper loss in the face. And you think, oh, I got the timing really wrong. Um, pound cost averaging, so that's a bit like, call it, let's call that approach taking the plunge. What pound cost averaging is, is when you effectively, you put in, you fix a pound cost, like £100 a month or £50 a month or £25 a month or you know whatever level is affordable. And you drip in every month, the same portfolio, the same fund, the same amount of money. 
So when markets are down, you'll be getting more units of that fund. When markets are up, you'll be getting fewer units of that fund. And what it means is that you're actually getting the average price each year for that fund. And it's a bit like rather than jumping to the swimming pool, you're lowering yourself in gradually. Um, and it's a more comfortable journey um, because it's less stressful and you don't have that binary thing of either getting really lucky because you happen to buy the market at a complete low or really unlucky because you happen to buy it at a, at a recent high. So it's, it's, it's really good for psychological and it's also much easier to do things on you know, direct debit, as it were, rather than having, having to save up and spend a lot of money in one go. So it's more practical from a budgeting point of view and it's also more practical from a behavioural finance perspective. Yeah, I, I guess it sort of softens the blow, the fact that you're getting more shares when the price is lower for, for the amount that you pay for them. I, I think exactly. an, a natural extension from um, thinking about inertia is then panic selling. So this plays on loss aversion bias. You mentioned some books by um, Daniel Kahneman earlier, that that's that investors are much more sensitive to one of one of his um, findings was that investors are much more sensitive to, or twice as sensitive to losses as they are to gains. Yes, that's right, and and this is this referred to as asymmetric loss aversion, which sounds really really complex. And yeah, that's exactly right. People feel twice the pain of a loss than they do for the for the gain of the same economic value, and uh, that's because you know, surprisingly, we, no no one likes losing money, but it, it causes a lot more pain, and and often that then that's why. Whereas actually, if you try and keep your you should be agnostic between the same amount of loss and the same amount of gain, but people aren't. And that is where people end up sort of thinking, I've seen a loss, I should sell and cut my losses and get out quickly. Um, and whereas actually often the thing to do is to keep calm and stay invested. Um, now that that is one very big behavioral trend, but there's another behavioral trend, which is whereby, you know, um, it's called where it's called, where people actually, um, they don't want to, it's called disposition effect. They, they don't want to, change what they're doing already so that's why people actually often you know hold on to winners too long or hold on to losers too too um too long as well so how can you tell whether you um <laughs> whether you should be selling it's... or not <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think i think it, it everyone's got to find i think the, the best thing this and this bit like uh is to just make a plan it's almost make, make your own set of rules and then stick to those rules because the moment you turn these things into a set of rules then you can actually just you can reduce the cognitive load. This kind of the whole idea of cognitive load, which is the stress of doing stuff, is um, so. Let's take your pound cost averaging example. Okay, let's say you're not doing pound cost averaging every month. Let's say you decide you've got you know, fifty thousand pounds to invest, rather than doing it all in one day on the first of January, twenty twenty-two. Um, you decide to break it up into four tranches, and you'll do one each quarter on the first of January, first of April, first of July, first of October, and you make that plan and you stick to it. By sticking to that, regardless of whether markets have gone up or down, you know you're sticking to your plan, and that gives you that kind of sense of comfort that you're, you know, you're sticking to a plan and you're not being distracted. So often having a sort of documented plan of, you know, these are my set of investing rules, if you like, um, or if something produces a loss, I'll hold on to it um, for this amount of time, or then switch it, or if something produces a loss, I'll get out of it immediately. So setting your own set of rules means that um, you're, it makes it more manageable. Yeah, that's that's great. Okay, so that's a really good point. You should write down your own rules. Um, so maybe, I think so. Maybe you say what your strategy is, what criteria you want met for for buying and selling. Could you give a bit more detail on what you should actually, what you might actually put to paper? Well, so what's interesting is actually when you look at all the big um, institutional investors like pension schemes and endowments, they have a written set of rules, and it's called an investment policy statement. 
Um, and so we can sort of run through some of the headings of that. But I always joke, you can actually do an investment policy statement on a, on a post-it note. But effectively, it's, a, it's, you know, what are your return objectives? That's the number one thing. What, 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 what level of returns are you seeking to get? Usually relative to inflation, because you're trying to preserve, the, the, the main objective is to preserve the value of capital or preserve or grow the value of your capital in real terms over time. So first of all, what are the objectives? Are you trying to match inflation, beat inflation a little bit, or beat inflation a lot? You know, uh, what was the level of return you're seeking? The second thing, obviously, what is the level of risk you're um, willing to accept to obtain that return? Because, you know, obviously, we would all love it if we got 5% guaranteed return with no risk taken. It just doesn't exist. It's, that's, a, that's a unicorn. So it's about what level of risk to capital you're prepared to take such that you would get that return in the long run. And the third component, the key component, is what's your time horizon? Um, because uh, time is really, really important factor because the volatility or the risk of a riskiness of an asset changes with time. So um, if you think about cash, for example, cash is a very low risk asset if you're investing for one to three to five years. But if you're investing for 100 years, cash is a very risky asset because it loses its purchasing power. Equally, equities uh, are a safe asset over a 100-year view, but a very risky asset over a one-year one view. And so understanding the relationship between risk, return, and time is probably the most important thing when making a plan. And then I think the next part of that plan is then what's the, what's the asset mix you're going to stick to to, to kind of deliver that plan? And that's where some, you know, obviously modeling tools and stuff helps or using a ready-made asset location from someone. And then finally saying, well, I'm going to have a rebalancing policy. So um, how often, how frequently do I rebalance my strategy to that mix of assets? Um, and it has to be said, if this is where, we, you know, where if you're using funds and ETFs, it's much easier to do that because you're focusing on the asset mix and the rebalancing. Um, if you're going into individual security shares of buy this share or that share, well, you know, good luck. You're going to have a much more stressful time because not only have you think about what's the asset mix to get right, you also can think which shares, individual shares on your own to construct that portfolio. And oftentimes it's, it's, it's well, you know, some people may do incredibly well from that. It, it actually creates the whole thing much more stressful. So we, we're big believers in building portfolios of funds and ETFs, um, getting the right allocation right to meet your objectives. And then by using funds and ETFs, you actually, you're not having to worry about, did this stock go up or did this stock go down? You're not sort of this sort of day trading mentality, which can be quite counterproductive. You're just buying the overall market um, be it actively managed or passively managed and not having to worry about the stresses of individual shares. So that's a really um, important distinction you make between funds and shares. And I think that links back to the biases that we were talking about earlier as well. So like the endowment effect one that you said about not wanting to sell because you you become too attached to a stock. And that's probably more likely to be an issue if you're holding individual shares rather than funds and maybe yes, the loss yeah, of version absolutely. bias kicks in more with funds investors and and you yeah um well no loss of version bias regardless of the instrument you're using whether it's shares or funds it's the same you just no one likes seeing a loss yeah um but i think where it gets more complex with shares and where you're absolutely right to highlight the endowment effect so um there's a lot of studies in the states around um what people own in their pension scheme because there's so much data out there and um, and there's some really interesting studies by Dalbar, the, the Dalbar study, and basically what it what it what it says a lot of private investors, by trying to do too much and by trying to sort of be too clever almost, end up 
creating self-harm. And it has a basic downbar study which compares the performance of private individual investment accounts relative to just a buy and hold approach of the S&P 500 or US Treasuries. And, and basically, um, it, it, the, the, the moral of the story is active investing like that damages your wealth. Because actually all that trading, all that effort, all that time, all that, um, you know, chasing the winners, cutting the losers, switching, trading, it's just like, it ends up an exercise of futility. It's wonderful for your broker because they make money on as and when you trade, but it's actually dreadful for your long-term wealth. And, and so that was a really interesting study called the Dalbar study. There's another thing, study, which is really interesting around the whole, you know, information around that, um, that financial education doesn't work. And that's kind of quite a big statement because obviously there's a huge amount of agenda. To, I don't mean it children's level. We've got to have financial education in schools. But what it found is that um, teaching people, trying to say, look, you should invest in ISA for these reasons and or you should save into your pension for these reasons or, you know, you should try and max out your contribution to your portfolio for these reasons. It doesn't really work. So, so a lot of government policy has been around what nudges can we introduce into policy so that people sort of invest without even noticing it as it were yes pension pension also and pension also yeah, enrollment, also enrollment yeah. is the big one and that's been really successful in the states and really successful here and what's really interesting is that um although everyone has the choice to pick their own investments within their pension about 99 percent of people go with the the standard option that's in there as the recommended scheme that is interesting i guess it's probably because most people feel like they might not know enough about it yeah it's, a, it's a inertia, inertia confidence. Yeah. exactly exactly I just picking up on a point um you made earlier about trading too much and how that can benefit your broker but not you there was um an interesting study from fidelity that um analyzed the S&P 500 from 1980 to 2018 so if you had invested ten thousand dollars in um in 1980 and were fully invested for the whole period at the end of it you would have over seven hundred thousand dollars if you had missed the five best trading days your returns would drop to four hundred and fifty eight thousand dollars so a 35 percent drop so that, that kind of shows how and and often the best days are at the bottom of sort of near the bottom of bear markets so it shows exactly and that, that's usually just at the time that you've capitulated and you say i can't bear the loss of need a little longer i'm selling and going to cash and and we saw that with covid so you know the one of the key messages we 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 gave to financial advisors so we weren't I mean, with financial advisors was um in covid so just keep calm and stay invested because actually it looks horrible when things drop like this but 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 it's often also the worst time to sell and actually can be the best time to buy um, and the analogy I try and give is the irony is we're all actually very familiar it's because of financial markets. People get very worried about like um, uh, a massive decline. But if you turn it around to Christmas shopping, you know, what was very expensive in the week before Christmas, suddenly when it's 30 percent off from Boxing Day sales, there's a queue around the block to buy someone I was delighted. Um, so if you just sort of change your mindset from thinking instead of saying a Oh dear, you know, I, I've just, I've just, I'm, I'm down. This is dreadful. To think, well, I was invested for good reasons. Um, something's happened, and now I can get the same investment at a, at a reduced price. So I think marvelous. As long as you've got money on side to top up, and I think what's been the, the kind of big lesson through the various, I think, three big crises that I've lived through: the dot com, the financial crisis, and and the COVID crisis, was you could sit sit there watching assets plunge. If you've got no liquidity on the side, you've got no cash on the side because you're fully invested, 
and you don't have that diversified asset mix of equities, bonds, and cash and alternatives, you've you've got you you can see the opportunity, but you've nothing to put in because you, there's, there's, you're fully invested, you're fully watching the losses. And um, I, I I'm I'm very intrigued by Warren Buffett's advice to retail investors, which isn't um, you know is to it's effectively have what, for his endowment fund for his char- for his uh, legacy is a, a nine, what I call a 90-10 fund. So it's 90% in, in an equity tracker fund and 10% in a, in a treasury tracker fund. And the reason you have the 10% there is that in those, you're, it's a bit of a drag on performance generally, but in those moments of um, kind of crisis, you've actually got the funds to go in and go shopping. And you've seen that the way Buffett investing to Goldman Sachs, just the financial crisis, the same principle, but you're doing it with the stock market. And there's a wonderful maxim that he, that he gives out to, in his shareholders' letters which is uh, you know to keep investing through thick and thin, and especially through the thin. But if you don't have some side pocket to, to invest, then you can't take advantage of the opportunities. Can it be difficult to know when the opportunities are there? I mean, often the sell-offs happen for a reason. And, yes. And you don't know that it's necessarily good, but like, are there any, how can you, there, how there can no, you maybe there, judge if it's, that, if it's a good time to, to, to go back in again? That's hard. And I think I think that's where I think just, you know, being informed, staying informed is, is important. But also it's why a lot of people end up delegating that to a portfolio manager, be that a, a multi-asset fund, which is like a ready-made fund or a multi-asset portfolio that's a ready-made portfolio. They don't want that stress of how to make those calls. Yeah. And and, and it's, it's also quite interesting. If you look at the history of stock market returns, um, you often sort of think of crashes happening quite quickly, but often... They don't, and bear markets can take quite a long time to play out. If you look at sort of turn of the century, yeah, exactly. And and there's been a lot of commentary. This uh, you know what so-called perma bears. People saying oh, it's the top of the market, and they say it for, uh, and there's going to be a crash. And they, you see, you say it for twenty years, and, and then when it happens, you go, "See, I told you so." A bit like it's on the stopped clock. Um, so so yeah, I think it's it's really hard to time the market. In fact, it's impossible to time the market, and when you shouldn't try. Um, but it, and that's where the whole idea of regular investing. I think it's just so compelling because rather than trying to time the market and it's almost like flip a coin, sometimes you get it right, sometimes you get it wrong, but um, is actually just to just keep topping up. And whilst you're, uh, you know, in the life stage of accumulating, it's like you're earning salary and you've got people put their direct debit for their groceries, their direct debit for their um, mobile phone, direct debit for everything. Having a direct debit that's going to your investment account means you just don't have to worry whether market's up, market's down. You're just you're just consistently buying the market. As time goes on and, and, that, and that consistency and that commitment to allocate a portion of your budget if you like to um to having risk assets is really important and you know, when i try to summarize it to my children i'm afraid i do bore them about this kind of stuff on occasion um <laughs> it's it's a very simple concept it's that you know if you own shares you make money when people spend money so rather than you know if, if you're buying a my little pony magazine that's Hasbro getting more money. If you're buying a chocolate bar, that's you know, um, who will be KKR getting more money. So it's kind of, it's 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 about um, being the receiving end of capitalism rather than the spending end of capitalism. And that, that's why I'm such a passionate believer in starting investing and to keep topping up. Another bias that I think's um, quite interesting and harder to unpick or identify is confirmation bias. So there was a study I was looking at that found that people were more than twice as likely to favour information that confirmed their view than went against it. Um, and that's quite, and, and also social media sites are probably a, a real echo chamber for this. 
Absolutely, absolutely. I think I think it, it's a, it's so it, it's confirmation bias was often when in the, in the in the academic studies was actually looking more like investment committees. So like investment committees often you know if people are all in the same firm, they have the same they've gone to the same kind of universities, they've done the same kind of courses, they have the same kind of career path. They're often going to end up having some kind of group think um, because effectively they they um, they kind of ha have a certain view of the world and they look for facts that support that particular view. Um, so that was the traditional sort of confirmation bias environment. Social media has created this whole new confirmation bias environment, whereby, um, be it on Reddit, be it on Facebook, you know, if you're in a, you know, fan group page, effectively a particular share or particular market, um, particular, but mainly shares, you know, because you've got a herd, the herding's another one, a herd of other investors who all believe the same thing, you get this huge sort of comfort um, from being amongst people who think identically. Was actually what you should be doing as a as a kind of analytical researcher is actually seeking out the opposing view um, and weighing it out equally and rationally. So I think um, confirmation bias um, and herding is something that um, always existed, but social media has really put it on steroids. And um, I think you know for certain stocks, I'm not going to mention any stocks today to be diplomatic, but have attracted almost like a cult like following. Um, and trying to reason with those kind of investors um, to sort of introduce a bit of diversification or you know, keep on to your darling if you really must, but please have a sensible, you know, solid, boring, multi-asset portfolio of ETFs or alongside it. And you, you get this blank look of a, the same from a cult. So they look at you saying, no, no, this is different. This is the future. You, you probably guess what to start. Tesla. Do you have any, um, do you have any practical advice on what different information sources people might look for to make sure they're getting objective and different views so i think i think you know i think the um it's the, so this is i mean sense. <laughs> this is why i think in a way uh, financial journalism um almost slightly focuses on the wrong things you know if, if, if i look at all the financial newsprint around it's very much perpetuating the whole like you know, you can you know, pick these shares and you, know, you, you can become a millionaire or, you know, pick these star managers and they're, they're the new King Midas and everything they touch goes to gold. And that kind of storyboard is great content, but it's not really uh, actually focused on investment outcomes. Whereas actually the, the really interesting stuff, which I think would be a useful help of information, is much more boring and dry, which is asset allocation research in terms of which markets you want to be in and why, you know, where now for US equities and how are you going to implement that? Or what balance should you have between equities and bonds, depending on different... So it's almost the portfolio construction element is the missing in financial journalism. It's much more about the stories around stocks, the story around star managers. And, and it, to me, it kind of misses the point. So that, don't take that as a personal dig. <laughs> Henry, think, Henry, I won't at all because you clearly don't have an Investors Chronicle subscription <laughs> because we do write exactly. allocation pieces often. <laughs> <laughs> well, it could be. I think the, the the balance of the balance the balance of content should be much more towards that and much less towards the other, in my view. Um, so, so that, that, and, and I think anything that focuses on that is, is absolutely right. So, but in terms of you know news sources, um, you know, um, Investors Chronicle, obviously, um, the FT, and I love my FT money at the weekends. That sort of the kind of hated moment on Saturday morning is really really good for personal finance. Um, uh, Bloomberg has a great subscription service and a great app, and also some of the asset managers and also the providers. So um, you know uh, the actual the providers, the brokers, you know, they actually have some of the content. 
some of it is quite um, journalisty, other it's more kind of asset allocation focused and kind of portfolio focused. I think the ones that focus on building good portfolios, those are the ones I'll be focused on. Yeah, I agree. And if you really want to get into the weeds of things, academic papers can be a good source. And also, if you're investing in companies, read the annual report because there's so much in there that's often missed yeah. by, by the yeah, no, absolutely. No, that's absolutely right. So if you're, if you're investing in companies, then, then they'll have an investor relations site and they'll have shareholder presentations. And, and um, you know, that was my background many years ago was doing exactly that. And, and, and there's a lot of information on companies that you can get from the companies. But then, it, yes, you want to have an independent view um, as well. Um, and I think that's where you know, it's the job of the providers to kind of provide really good quality research on those individual companies. Um, but I kind of think, you know, if you are doing individual companies, you want to have you know, at least 30 um, in your portfolio. But again, I just think for retail investors, I think you know, trying to pick individual stocks is, is a challenge. There's an information asymmetry. You'll never have as much information or move as quickly as professional investors. And um, it's just a much harder operation to deliver. I know it's more fun and more enjoyable, but I think there's a, probably a balance in between the two. We're having a sensible kind of um, portfolio core, which is like a multi-asset portfolio, um, be it a multi-asset fund or a multi-asset portfolio. That's your kind of the, the core engine that delivers the objectives and then some satellite holdings around the stuff that's interesting that you follow. Um, but at least you've got the kind of core engine there and some satellite holdings around the, the shares that are of interest. Um, but yeah. yeah, I think I think keep, keeping abreast of the news and and um, uh, but and then the research papers you're absolutely right. There's some really good stuff um, uh, on the CFA Institute. I don't know if that's still public, um, but um, there's a kind of repository of by topic where you can actually get. Um, I think it is public actually. Um, you can get different um, research papers on different financial topics, um, including behavioural finance. Yeah, no, I I do completely agree. It's really difficult to beat the market in the private investors defense against an active fund manager though you um you're not judged on your quarterly performance in the way that they are and you can you're not managing so much money so you can buy and sell more quickly but i'm i'm not here to advocate people become stock pickers I just yeah. wanted to, I well no well i think i know but i think well I, actually it was coming back to the the endowment effect so often you have um you know there used to be a big and this is a study in the states as well often um, you know, people um, own shares in their own company. So let's say that you work for a big listed company and you might get bonus payments or you might get share options or whatever, and you end up having your a, a share portfolio of the company for whom you work. And that's your only shareholding sometimes. And, and that's, that's great, but then it's also quite a risk because if you, if, if, if you lose your job and the, if the company does badly and you lose your job, the shares go down you're, you're hit twice so so a, lo a lot of um, a lot of investors make sense if you if you are getting shares from your own company to actually then diversify that um, not to be just in your own company but, but a lot of people are reluctant to do that because they feel it's a kind of loyalty that because they work for the company they should own shares in it um, but then, then so that's one reason to diversify away but that said if you are a specialist who understands a particular part of the market with a huge amount of detail be it in healthcare or be it in defense or be it something where you actually have better insight than professional managers who are just sitting behind desks, then, then why not? You know, um, it, 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 I think but the way I see share investing is it's something that you should do if you're willing to put in the time, the energy, the commitment, and have a, a more of a roller coaster ride, if you like, um, in addition to the main asset allocation roller coaster ride of which markets and how much in each. There's another, there's another bias that we haven't touched on yet, um, which I'd like to talk about because it's 
it's an interesting one, which is outcome bias. So the role of luck in investing is is huge and the long time frames involved mean that getting feedback on your investment decisions can be quite difficult. Um, mm. And they're sort of coupled with overconfidence. You know, people can misidentify getting lucky and being skilled. And yes. How do you have any um, guidance on how you could maybe uncouple <laughs> luck and skill? Yeah, it, it's it's really hard because um, this is really technical. But a lot of the providers, the brokerages, they have really quite lousy sort of performance reporting. So like you can't get. It just shows you like what was your book cost, what's your current value, and if you if you switch funds, you get a new book cost and new. It, it, there's no you can't actually see time series data of what is your money weighted or time weighted performance chart like you can for a fund. So you can't actually. I've yet to see it from any of the um, you know where you actually see your own portfolio track record, um, as it were, which would enable those kind of comparisons, and and then you'd actually be able to think, well, actually that's because I made that decision to switch out of that and into that. Uh, you know, that's because actually, you know, I kind of topped up my account and bought some more equities just when they'd fallen out of bed. So you, 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 there's no data um, for investors to be able to, to kind of do that. So it is done mainly on sentiment and memory can play tricks on you. So, you know, you're right. The, the main aim is to be more right than more wrong for most of the time. Well, that's when I, when I started in the city, that's what one of our managers said, saying as long as you're more right than more wrong for most of the time, then you're OK. Um, whether that more rightness comes from luck or skill or judgment, um, can vary <laughs> so i yeah. think i think um yeah knowing knowing again but again having a logbook so if you've had your you've made your investment plan but if you also make a note like in a diary you've got investment diary saying you decide to do this because of these reasons and you know evidence why you've done it which is again saying what happens to investment companies but there's no reason why uh investors can't do it themselves you can actually then look back in time and saying oh why didn't i part in at that time or why did i get out at the time and you've actually written it in a little investment diary as to um, you know what the rationale was at the time. Yeah, I agree. I do think that's an area that where platforms really let the customers down. There's no reason with technology where it is today that the reporting um, quality can't be improved. I think yeah. I did look into this last year, and I think Fidelity do time weighted performance. Um, but yeah, and I think IG do in fairness as well. And, they, and in terms of interface, they're my favourite interface for 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 working on. Whereas. Um, uh, other interfaces you're literally it's quite clunky and it just doesn't it's not if you're a fashion investor you're used to seeing things that are very very slick very very dynamic and very very well presented and um and so yeah it varies hugely and it and it, and it, it there should there's so much money at stake you think the technology would be rushing to upgrade user interfaces but that's a separate problem we won't touch on maybe they but, don't want people to know <laughs> maybe they've got an interest in it not being so clear <laughs> the, the, another another bias that comes up a lot which i think is a really interesting one is um well is is well the two that i'd, I'd like to touch on one is what's called choice overload and there's a really interesting study by Ienga on what's called the jam experiment and it basically compared these um two um, it was same supermarket same customers they did two different trial promotions with jam uh and one and one day they basically had a you know, I think almost like 20 different types of jam, or definitely different types of strawberry jam. And um, they found that while lots of people came to browse, very few people actually bought. Um, and so what they then, they reduced the choice to just like, like to three jars. And they found that um, uh, although fewer browsed, more bought. Mm. So choice architecture 
is really important because if you certainly think about it, there are 3,000 funds to choose from. Which ones do you want? Whereas if you slim it down saying like we offer these five ready-made funds or ready-made portfolios, it's much easier to, easier to choose. So, cho cho um, so choice overload is a really important thing. And I think a lot of the, old, a lot of the, the uh, providers are now moving to this more curated approach to help people um, make those informed choices. Um, because actually, if you give too much choice, you get lower engagement, people get put off because it suddenly becomes that cognitive load increases. People just go, oh, God, I don't know where to start. Whereas if you actually restrict the choice, but then you have to restrict, make sure that the choices you put on offer are really good choice. So if your three jams are, you know, a, uh, you know, if the three things you offer are very complex and esoteric products, saying, well, do you want to choose, you know, this uh, emerging markets fund or this Russia fund or this India fund? Then people probably pick one of those three funds. But if you say, well, do you want to have a cautious ready-made fund, a balanced ready-made portfolio, but more growth portfolio, then you're giving people ready-made investment solutions. So, so understanding choice architecture and making sure that what you offer at the end of that choice journey is really important for providers and something that we see financial advisors do and the direct consumer providers do as well. It's really important they get that right. So from an investor's point of view, when you're picking jam from your platform, make sure you know how they've made the jam. <laughs> well, understand that you're you're going into a journey and, and, and it's the quality of the solution at the end of that journey. So, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not going to name names again, but like if you, some, some of the journeys in there are really, really clear and really, really, kind of easy and it's like like a click-through process and you actually end up in a really good value solution at the end of it where it's actually right okay yeah i understood it explained it go ahead click go and off we go but then the end solution is super high quality really low cost good value for money um other providers might have a very slick journey saying here's this ready-made solution da, 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 click 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 but the end solution it could be an incredibly high cost multi-manager fund with like really high OCF, uh, ongoing charges figure, that isn't particularly well-constructed. So choice architecture is important, but the, the, kind of, the responsibility to the providers and their invest, investment governance obligations is coming into regulations now, is their investment committees have to make sure, their product governance committees have to make sure that the end solutions at the end of those journeys are, are in customers' best interest and offer good value for money. But that's, that's yeah. much more on the, the provider side. Um, oh. Sorry. Oh, it's because I've got so much I want to talk about, but we're running out of time. One question, which I think is important. We talked about setting up um, an investment plan earlier on in the podcast. How should you review your plan? How often should you review it? What might be the sort of key things you should be looking at? So I, I think, I, think um, I suppose... We talked about return, risk, and time and the, the main things, and a, and a review period. So I think it depends how long you're investing for. If it's all investing for, uh, I think you know, definitely once a year, um, possibly four times a year, um, definitely not every day, um, yeah. because there's another whole study where information overload with too much information, people tend to overtrade, um, which creates not just frictional cost but ends up more risk of just getting out on the wrong step. So I think I think um, annually definitely, quarterly probably. Monthly, maybe. Daily, don't. Yeah. Yeah, great. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. That was really interesting. We've covered loads of ground and there's so much more I would have liked to talk about, but we're out of time. Yeah, but I think having a look at those books you said earlier, the Kahneman books, the um, uh, the um, Tara and Soonstein books on nudge theory, these are really interesting because they actually unpick your own mind and, and understand why you decide things the way you do. And it's, it's really powerful and really important.
Thank you.